Welcome to the Lazy People Podcast, the podcast about all things technology and people and technology in Belgium, of course, from outside of Belgium. My name is Errol Baikal, and I'm here with my co-host, Metzian. Yeah, it's Okay, so welcome to the show again, everyone. Today we have uh, Chris Hoffmans with us, uh, a uh, very seasoned software developer, and we'll be delving into a very interesting topic. But uh, before we go into that, last episode we discussed the issues with working from home or the issues that people could have with working from home. You work from home right now, Chris? Yes, I am uh, almost a year now. Okay, um, uh, do you like it? Do you prefer the office or? No, I, I love working from home, but uh, I know that I'm in a luxury position because uh, I have a quite a nice garden shed, which uh, isolates me from the house and the children and the noise. And, uh, oh, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, uh, uh, the, the downside is I don't have a toilet in my garden shed. So sometimes I have to walk through the rain to go to the, ho- the toilet. But overall, it's a great place to work. You're saying it's worth it. Yeah, yeah, I, I got really lucky because it, it definitely wasn't planned to be used as an office, but right now I really like my office space at home. Oh, yeah, that was going to be my follow-up question. So um, since a lot of us suddenly got stuck working from, like, obviously most people in IT, they sort of had one or two days uh, of week working from home and it was a luxury. Now it's a requirement and... Um, we're forced to work from home uh, five days a week, seven days a week, depending on who you're working for. <laughs> um, in the past year that you've been working from home, did you change anything about your setup? Like, did you invest in, in other things because working from home became uh, more important than working at the office? Yeah, definitely. Now, I, I do like the fact that you say that we, we used to be able to work at home for like one or two days, but I always had the feeling like uh, when when the team wa- was in an office together and somebody was working from home, it was usually like, oh, don't bother the guy, he's working from home. It, it, it felt like really, really special. And now that everybody's working from home, yeah, I, I, I get calls and interruptions all day and, and it feels a lot more natural if everybody's doing it. So to, to me, it actually uh, changed the way I view remote work. And I, I didn't see it working before. I was one of those IT guys doing a lot of coaching, uh, thinking that I needed to be able to see the, the body language to, to uh, see if somebody was understanding you. Uh, but, but overall, even with just audio, of course, webcams help. But even with audio, the, the uh, rhythm in which they respond or, or the delays uh, already help a lot with uh, uh, when you're coaching somebody. So uh, it, it was a bit getting used to, but I really like it. And yeah, I, I did upgrade uh, a lot of my setup. I already had an ultra wide screen, but I bought a better webcam, a better microphone, a standing desk, because that's one of the biggest downsides of working at home. Is you, you get less exercise, even just walking up some stairs or, or things like that. Uh, and I bought a, a treadmill so I can even use the standing desk uh, to, to walk uh, while working. Oh, okay. Wow. That's actually uh, pretty health conscious. I think a wise investment. Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right, Chris. 
uh, working from home, uh, like compulsory working from home, has actually taught us how to work remotely. You're 100% right about that. The person who was dialing in, you know, you set a laptop in the meeting room, and that's that person from home, and uh, you, don't even, you don't even bother to check whether they can hear you because it's a hassle. But now we, we've, we've actually grown accustomed to that culture. So I think that's a, that's a big win for everybody. Well, something now that's we transition. Something I want to yeah. mention, which is a lot of people talk about it, and and I just want to make sure it's everyone really knows about it. So working from home, I think it works when everyone's working from home, and not when you have a mix. I think it, the the bad thing is when you have half the team is working from home, and the other half is in one room in a meeting, in 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 the office, for example. Uh, and that's really where you end up with the small chat between the ones next to one another, and it does not it does not become um, that efficient for the ones working from home in that case. So it's really this is one of the things where either everyone from the office or everyone's away. That works. These are the two setups that kind of keep keep the um, the communication uh, at its uh, uh, at its optimal or best or best uh, levels. I, I think you have a good point, and there is some companies that try to work around this, and their remote policy, even before the whole Corona thing um, struck us, is that um, when somebody is remote, everybody pretends they're remote. That means you're in a meeting room, everybody dials in with their headset, so you're all, you know, in that laggy um, uh, connection that that person shares. Um, but yeah, good point. And now we should basically ask Chris, you know, we didn't bring you here to talk about uh, work from home. We didn't bring you here to uh, get your opinion on remote work, which was uh, interesting. We got you here for some other reason, because uh, if you'll briefly introduce yourself, uh, the topic that we're going to discuss today will make itself more clear. Chris, please. Okay, so um, I'm Chris and um, I've been developing software uh, professionally for um, almost 15 years now. And uh, before I was doing it professionally, I was uh, doing it very crappily uh, as a student and uh, already uh, do doing some little uh, paid projects uh, while I was a student. Um, that's also where I got to meet you, Edel. I think we were 15, 16 year olds. Uh, you were hacking at Python. Uh, I, I was, uh, uh, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm too ashamed to say it, but uh, writing PHP code. Uh, <laughs> um, no, there's, there's nothing wrong with PHP. I don't want to scare your no, PHP no. listeners away. Um, and uh, so I've been doing it quite a while. Um, uh, usually when I'm coaching people these days, I always say uh, that I've been doing it so long that I got to make all the mistakes uh, that I'm talking about. Um, and uh, so we, we started uh, Triple D, which is a, a software company. Uh, what we try to do is uh, basically team as a service. So um, uh, today we'll discuss some of the, the common problems with software development. Um, and uh, we, we try to mitigate those with uh, the team as a service concept. Um, so yeah, that's basically it. I'm also uh, a dad. I have two daughters, uh, which is uh, also a very challenging job. Um, mm -hmm. uh, sometimes very short nights. Uh, yeah, that's about it. 
Yeah. Well, um, so uh, the reason why I uh, really wanted Chris here for the topic that we're going to discuss, which I'm keeping secret, but you can read the title, is because um, Chris is a very opinionated person when it comes to software development. And you have a lot of opinionated people when it comes to software development. But I think Chris is one of the few people I know who can actually back up the opinions with, with substan substance. So without further ado, the topic of today is uh, why do most software projects suck? And uh, I want to open this with a paraphrase of a, of a tweet that I saw and I couldn't find it. Um, and it's been some time since I saw it, I, at, at least a year ago, because it was before Corona. It was something like this. So the person sending out the tweet said something along the lines of, after 40 years of software development, I have come to the conclusion that a successful software project is simply the result of luck. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I hope it's not the case. <laughs> Okay, so uh, for that opening statement, now I'm going to go to to another statement and feel free to to attack the first statement and whatever I'm going to say now. Um, like both of you, uh, you're invited to shred it to pieces. Now, to me, the definition of a good software project is simply two things: it delivers what the customer or user wants on time. Okay, that's the basic premise: what the customer wants on time yeah but and here's here's the but there's uh so you have two points what the customer wants point one uh on time point two but because the software project basically is never done the software just keeps on you know you keep working on it there are two additional points i will add to that one of it is that it needs to be easy to maintain and easy to expand because of the fact that you know it keeps on evolving what do you think of this? Well, that, that's already a lot of information. So uh, it, it actually reminds me a lot what uh, Robert C. Martin or Uncle Bob, as most of the software developers uh, know him, as the, the two values of software. So um, uh, what, what, he, uh, what usually people call the, the first value of software, which is it does what the customer needs uh, at this point in time. So your, your software fulfills your current business need. That, that's the primary value to most people. But actually that's the secondary value because the primary value is your software is easy to change because your software might not do exactly what you need to today, but it can quickly get there. And if your software is easy to change, it can also move there tomorrow. So I think it's actually more important what you call your, your third and your fourth point of like being easy to maintain and easy to change. I think those are the mo most important things. Um, then the, the, the point of uh, delivering on time, I think that's a, a real tricky one. Um, I think you can always deliver something useful for a specific point in time to which you can work but that really means that you need to have a software team that is very familiar with the functional flows that there is a big common understanding of what your customer needs and it will probably mean that a lot of the scope that in a typical project 
and I don't like the name project, but I'll come back to that, um, uh, will need to be cut. And usually in a, a typical project, there's a lot you can cut because they're nice to have or very exotic cases. So um, you already said that a project is never done. That's why I prefer the term product. So you're working on a product and uh, I've seen too many project managers just trying to finish their project. And I think that's already um, driving them to uh, hurry certain things, take shortcuts, which endanger the fact that the software uh, product won't be very maintainable. Okay. Um, okay, those points, I, I uh, take them and uh, I think they're, uh, they're very valid points. Um, maybe a bit of a, a reverse, uh, a reversal of, of the track we're down now, but let's go back to the title of this discussion. Why do most software projects suck? Th is that a valid question? Do most software projects suck? Yeah, I, I think most companies aren't software companies, so their main business isn't to uh, build and deliver software. So. Um, uh, let's take any, uh, okay, let, let's take a big example like Zalando. Zalando, to me, isn't a web shop, it's a software company. Um, and it, it's like Netflix. Netflix is also a software company and uh, they, they are very good at IT. They're very good at delivering software and they could basically deliver everything but they just chose a specific uh, business domain to develop software for, like streaming. And I think the, the big problem is with older companies, like uh, uh, especially uh, in Belgium, well, I, I won't name specific names, but the, the, the clothing stores that we saw 20 years ago that are now, um, uh, they have to close because of Corona. They don't have decent web shops. They don't have simple customer friendly processes like Zalando where you can just send back stuff um, uh, and, and their software is really lacking because they, they, were, they were like shops that got visited a lot. They were good at selling clothes, but then suddenly they had to start building software and it was like an afterthought to their business process while Zalando was software first. And I think that's a, a big difference. I think it's much harder for a legacy company with a, a non-software related business model to pivot to uh, uh, mainly uh, software. Mm -hmm. Much harder, but not impossible. Huh? Not impossible, no. Mm -hmm. But one of the... Med, let's yeah, have your thought. So, yeah. um, the, you could all, all also look at it like the, the ones that are successful, like the companies you mentioned, like uh, Netflix, for example. Um, because they, their initial um, offering was based on the, on the internet uh, and it was based on mailing things, but uh, that even got easier for them. They stopped having dealing with, with the post office and, and, mm -hmm. and even physical physical product. Um, those are companies are based uh, from start for them to be able to bring food to the table. They have to do software and they have to do it good. When other companies they have they found their own way of making their 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 profits uh, so when it was a necessity to jump to the internet wagon they they couldn't 
they couldn't do it because first of all they have no good track on it and two maybe they were too late and three maybe they hired those those um they didn't have a good good teams to take them there because um you see this a lot from actually um amateur people that would think for example oh i just want a website and then i'm online you know I'm, i have a web shop and and and, and you know that's that's not that's not going to be the case. You know, it's, we can see it's you know from from far away, right? That not being online, having a web website that does not make you a, a an e-commerce giant or does not make your your business successful. Um, so yeah, I think I think it's it's difficult to to compare. Um, for example, like you mentioned Zalando, I know they both, Zalando and some other store, uh, physical store, they might be both in the clothing business, we would name them in clothing business, um, but they're two different companies, absolutely. Uh, so I agree with that. But I do have I do have another reason why a lot of projects suck. Um, I don't know if you're ready for it or Okay. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah. I'm ready for this. Actually, prepare for this one. Oh. So uh, I'm gonna do. A, I'm gonna do a little experiment, uh, and that's the following. I'm gonna ask you both uh, a simple question, and I want you both to blurt out the answer immediately, and we'll give you both time to to expand on it. So <laughs> I don't want you to think too much about it. But Matt apparently has <laughs> already given it a thought. So because here's the question. Tell me one thing. That will easily and immediately mess up any software project don't think too <laughs> long <laughs> too, too much money incompetence too much money yeah <laughs> too much money <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> and incompetence okay um chris i'll, I'll let you uh yeah, too much money uh, you, how you, does that how does that mess up a project you you look really shocked but when, when i uh, met was talking uh, uh about uh, the legacy companies uh, i i was thinking of some examples where i've been um not going to name names but they just had so much money that management was like yeah let's hire 50 software consultants at the same time and it's just pure chaos so um um, if you're a small company just starting out, you need to bring bread to the table. Uh, I, I can guarantee you that those companies are uh, building the pieces of software that will actually bring uh, value to the table. Uh, while if you're uh, a very big company, a bank, and you want to do like a, a huge project uh, um, a couple of years with uh, a lot of uh, consultants. Uh, um, they want everything in, in one big bang release. They don't want to work iteratively. Um, it immediately leads to something so complex that uh, uh, no matter if you find the people that want to take ownership of that project, they just can because it's too big to comprehend. I think also some government projects have uh, been big failures because of this. Uh, there's like uh, the, the um, automation of the justice department here in Belgium. They already tried for a couple of times. Um, they just want to uh, automate everything at the same time. They write um, huge analysis documents. Um, 
that never properly get built or when they start building it they come to the conclusion that most of it just doesn't work it was just nice on paper uh, so yeah i think too much money is often uh, a problem well it, uh, this is i think yeah i i would agree uh, in this sense uh, this is when we sometimes attribute it to um uh, project managers when they think um you know having you can have nine women to deliver one baby in one month right we we joke about it uh, but that's not possible we know that certain things will take time and you have to have a path uh, towards it um but my, my my take on this is is this um uh, the reason why um projects or it projects kind of fail uh, well software projects specifically um and this goes. I I I I, I want to keep this short <laughs> because I don't want to dive too big. It's gonna really, okay. But okay, let's put it this way: software engineering. It it's the um, it, it is a baby. Yeah, it's it's an engineering um, um, an engineering practice. It's not that old. Now, any any other form of engineering where you design something. If you're building, for example, um, let's suppose we're building um, uh, a bridge, right? That has been done for years and years and years, and there is a lot of um, uh, uh, data to support it, and there's a lot of uh, uh, numbers that are really exact and precise, and then you double down on that, uh, I mean, you, you, you reinforce that, so you have really full, you have no f way to fail, like really, it, the, the, min the, the, the margin to fail is really minimal. Or if we look at an, an, an accountant, for example, an accountant has this double entry system where things cannot not match they will they ha has two columns and at the end the two columns will, will will be equal to one another if there's any mistake it's easily spotted now in software we have none of that we have any anybody that could say that could be involved in some project which they might end up doing different things uh, have different um, way of working and plus there is no no two projects are identical in a sense, right? Um, uh, you know, we look at bridges, every bridge, uh, uh, well, bridges are different as well, but okay, but they kind of resemble a bit. If we, if we talk about buildings, you can, buildings resemble. Uh, but software is really, we, we put in a lot of things from, we're using first, the small blocks are all um, unique, plus there's no, no um, balance checking, right? So. Uh, we could try to to write um, like unit tests and and do certain things to help, but that does not cover everything. Does not cover being successful. And and this is the reason why it can easily fail. Meaning the problem with, with software is like the failure. If you're at a hundred percent when you're working, and when you when you mess up a tiny bit, you don't just fail to 95%. No, you drop to 10%, or you would simply not work, or would go to 50%. So that's another the, the ratio of of um, of uh, having something incomplete or having a mistake versus how the outcome of it it's really it's high because we don't have reinforcement, we don't have like backups. Now, if we, if we go back to the example of of um, of Netflix, when Netflix are known to have the uh, whatever they call it, like um, uh, the monkey, monkey yeah, test. monkey test yeah. or services. Chaos monkey. Yeah, 
Exactly. So services are going, you know, you, you check service by taking this service down and see what will be the effect of it, right? And then you you put backups, like you put um, uh, ways to 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 mitigate for that, right? To 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 fix that in case something breaks. Um, and that's unfortunately, you have a project. We don't do all that work to. We don't spend enough time to do all that to back it up. This is why most, well, I should say most, but okay, a lot of projects do fail. But you did say you did your your thing was your one thing was incompetence. So all of this to you is incompetence, then, Matt. Uh, well, it's probably a bad word because you gave <laughs> you put pressure on me to spit a word really quick. <laughs> <laughs> so incompetence is not the the best word, but if if it was, you can easily have inc an incompetent uh, team. Um, in general, uh, you might have one good, but some people or five people who would break things. Um, so you might have uh, incompetence that would lead you to this, right? Uh, you would see more trouble than another team that's really, really good. But even for them, if you squeeze them too much uh, on time or on, on resources or whatever the case might be, they might end up with having some delivery that is very, um, how do I put it? Very fragile, right? So if it could break because there is no reinforcement that are there to... to um you know, what's interesting here is, uh, before I give the word back to you, Chris, um, because I know you probably want to react on, on some of the things that have been said. Before I do that, I want to say, you know, you, you guys just painted uh, like the opposite sides of the spectrum. Um, Chris, you were talking about the dangers of having an abundance of resources. And Matt, you're talking about uh, the, the scarcity of resources, where both of these actually lead to, um, to projects failing. Um, so maybe there's like a sweet spot. But uh, Chris, uh, you know, um, Matt also said a lot of things if you want to uh, uh, pick in on something or... Yeah, well, I, I think that's an interesting point that you're making because I, I think your uh, constrained resource is, is uh, good people. So it, it's not hard to find uh, lots of ITers. Uh, you, you have big consultancy companies, but even if you have a, a lot of money, and I, I think that might also be one of the points uh, that Med is trying to make is you, you need competent people. Because maybe a better word for incompetence would be to have uh, actually trained people. Because I don't believe that software uh, is lacking the techniques that we have to uh, like, like in accounting and uh, building bridges. Those techniques are there. Uh, I even value techniques a lot more than specific frameworks or even programming language uh, languages. Um, I, I, I do think it's a bit odd that you say that uh, TDD uh, is still too fragile. Because to me, uh, it's actually uh, something where you can use uh, two sides of a balance to, to make sure that the other side is... Uh, yeah. Oh yeah, don't please go ahead. I just want to say for our listeners at home who might not know what TDD is, if you could briefly uh, explain that as well. Okay, so uh, TDD, it's one of the core values of Triple D. It's test-driven development. That means that you'll actually start writing a test first. So, uh, for example, if you would build a calculator, you would say, uh, I have a number two and I have another number three, and then I want to add them and I expect the result of the code that I'm writing to be five. And you haven't actually written any production code yet, 
but you as a developer you actually perfectly know what the functional expectation is of the code that you're supposed to write uh, and how does this help you in software development well I, I think w one of the big problems is that people don't know exactly what they have to write when they uh, are usually expected to start writing code so um, I, I, I think fuzziness in fun functional requirements or um, uh, explosions of Jira tickets written by an analyst who was expected to just produce tickets is usually the, the first uh, uh, source of, of failure. Um, um, I, I think uh, that if you have too big of uh, analysis documents or uh, a huge backlog log of tickets, that's like useless uh, stock, it's inventory, it doesn't give you any value, you can build it immediately and by the time that you reach the ticket in the backlog it's usually outdated or you've uh, wasted lots of time in refining it. Um, there are better techniques like uh, event storming, um, user study mapping, to create a common understanding uh, that, uh, for a minimum viable product, a walking skeleton, uh, that that already, um, even in a bigger organization with, with too much money, forces you to focus on the things that are important to reach a functional end-to-end -end flow that really starts to help your business a lot faster. And the techniques that help you are things like TDD, um, to actually um, hold back regression in your code. It doesn't guarantee that the code is bug-free, but it does at least uh, guarantee you that there is a baseline for uh, the functionality that you TDD'd, that it's at least working, as expected or understood by the developer at the time of working. To me, there is no real substitution for uh, TDD because um, you can manually test your application or even automate it in other ways, but usually that feedback cycle takes way too long especially manual testing, you can't keep doing that if your project uh, really starts to grow. Yeah, so one of the, the base tenets of, of uh, TDD is um, short feedback cycles, right? I change the code, I run my test, and within one second, I should know whether I broke something. Yeah. And this gives the developer confidence that uh, the changes he made did not accidentally break something in another part of the code because, you know, uh, large code base can tend to be complex, like you, you move something somewhere, you break something uh, a mile away in another file, uh, to put it that way, and TDD basically helps you to define these boundaries against which your, uh, your functionality can, uh, uh, you know, you're saying, don't cross this boundary, <laughs> you know, just give it like, if you cross this, you're failing it, and this gives you um, a fail-safe and um, confidence. <laughs> Yeah, well, the, the boundary you're talking about, that's where actually TDD um, sort of meets like the, the architecture of the application. So where TDD often went wrong is where people aren't trained enough in uh, TDD and architecture to actually find the boundaries that are useful for testing. So um, you can perfectly do TDD at the wrong boundary, um, making your code very hard to change. So if you're doing it at a, a too low a level, uh, then then basically you're just mirroring the code in test and production. Well, it's like a, a, a white box testing, 
uh, thing, just testing single methods uh, immediately on each class, um, that doesn't give you a lot of refactor room. Because, yeah, if you uh, immediately want to change the class, your test will also uh, start to change. But what if you have more outside-in testing? So uh, probably a couple of layers uh, outside of uh, where people usually start to apply TDD. So uh, um, you have a much bigger scope in your test. Uh, your feedback cycle can still be very fast, like uh, in less than one second. But you, you might solve the business problem with six classes uh, while you don't have uh, six levels of tests. Okay, wow. Uh, this is actually uh, surprising to me because um, uh, the uh, the idea fathers of, of TDD actually, uh, if I remember correctly, they uh, advocate um, testing on an atomic level. And I think myself included, a lot of people understand this to be uh, as low as you can go, whereas now you're saying, hey, actually, you shouldn't do that. And when you say it, it makes sense to me on a, on a gut level, uh, on a gut feeling level, where I think, yes, what you're saying makes sense, because if on a more uh, functional level than in a, on an atomic level, I can, you know, check the result of, of a function. Uh, if something breaks down, down in the lower levels, it still bubbles up. I write fewer tests, more meaningful tests, right? Yeah. But if, if I may, but if I may, um, so it's nice to hear that you know Triple D, you know your company um, um, is applying, you know TDD, which is um, if if we, if we look at um, um, reality or the the, the numbers, uh, very few companies that work that way. That's 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 I I'm willing to bet whatever you want. That's the case. Now. Um, that still does not put software engineering at the level of someone designing a bridge. It, it's we're still not there because what happens with software development, there's always the lack of time. Even if you have a lot of resources, even we have companies that have a lot of money, when, they, when we said they go to that approach of, yeah, let me get more people to deliver fast. They still want to deliver fast. So you have to cut corners. You always have to make the Rachels to cut some corners. You cannot cover everything. So now I'm glad also that you described when you do TDD are at a bit higher level, because to me, when you measure at first, I'm like, well, wait a second, this is a unit test. Yeah. Uh, well, wait, can, can we go back to the fact where you say that you have to cut corners? Because yes. I, I, I I don't think that you only have to cut corners in software, you also have to be able to cut scope. It wouldn't be fair to just ask your software team to uh, take shortcuts. Sometimes your business has to give up nice to have functional requirements too and focus on the main case. I think uh, it's there where you really need to have a, a cooperation and a trust with the business where you can negotiate about these things and say like, yeah, how often does it happen? Yeah, two times a year. Okay, uh, we'll manually fix it in the database if it happen happens. Is that okay? That will save us four weeks of development. Th these are actual things that we do as well. Um, and uh, I, I never uh, cut corners uh, if I would feel that it would violate the system. Well, it, um, it, it not, it not for, okay, maybe the choice of cutting corners, this could be the effect of the, the, the result of maybe some other mistake in the way, but 
it's um, not not scanning corners, but more like um, like trade-offs, right? You say, okay, I have to do this, I have to live by this time, so what am I going to choose, this, this, or that? And some people tell you, look, drop testing, for example, because I've been I've been quoted, for example, a company might get quoted from multiple uh, uh, outsourcers, right? Our, uh, outsourcing companies, and you will be one of the um, you will seem to them as being one of the least, you know, offering this value, because all the other ones are going to skip on this test that you talk about, and are they mm -hmm. going to have more bugs? Probably. Is are the bugs? Again, are they going to be going to be a problem? Well, they say, well, we're going to fix them afterwards if there's any bugs. So they may, they may have uh, have a better offer for you. The thing in life is this: sometimes we think we have to ha always have to have 100% to deliver, but there is this threshold sometimes in anything that once you are above it, you're okay. Meaning, it's acceptable to the human being, mm -hmm. right? It's acceptable. Maybe it's, it's in, in some project, maybe a 90%, right? And any mistake between that 90 and 100, if it's not delivered or half of it or, or, or it's not perfect, that's still okay. It doesn't make it too bad. And it's not worth it. It, it costs too much to put that 10% really under, right? We, we know like that last, last 20, 10% well, is, 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 is costly. But I, I also disagree with, with most of that because uh, I, I think you often see that but what what you see there is like uh and, and then we get back to incompetence or lack of training um that uh okay they, they might uh bring a better quote and we might lose out on the opportunity to develop software for them but once they've developed software with the other party for like three years uh we can ask for a lot higher quote <laughs> than, than, than the first time because they will see that uh, what the damage that has been done as well. Uh, I, I believe that if you have a highly trained team, there is not a lot of concessions that you have to make. Uh, a lot of time in a software project with random consultants, I compared it to throwing dice for a Yatsi and, and having to uh, get a Yatsi, uh, is solved by having team as a service where you don't need to discuss whether or not you're going to TDD and at which boundary you're going to do it. And if you're going to use taps or spaces and um, those sort of things, uh, that, that's what a lot of customers are paying for, the, the same idiotic discussions over and over again. If you have a well-trained team that agrees on a lot of things, already had the discussions, and actually if they uh, think a discussion is worth having, has it in their own time, not on the customer's dime, you can get really far and you can reach that 100%. Um, uh, I want to uh, add in an anecdotal story, so it's not scientific uh, evidence, but... Um, no, we can't have that. Oh, so. oh, oh <laughs> damn! Yes, uh, no. <laughs> I, I'm a fraud, you got me! <laughs> no, no, please go uh, ahead, Chris. So, so um, it was for a, a big company. Uh, it, it wasn't a financial company, but it was their finance department, and it's a multinational. And um, the uh, turnaround of the application, we were doing a greenfield rewrite of, and they considered it to be a really complex application. Um, and it was a rewrite because they uh, didn't dare to touch the application anymore because last time they touched it, they lost a lot of money. 
and the turnover of the application was um, uh, 100 billion US dollars a year. Yeah. It, wow. Yeah. So you know that. Well, wait, let's, let's 100 billion dollars a year yes. went, went through this system. Yes, indeed. Yeah, so it, it was a, a foreign currency exchange application. So that, that's all I'll say about the, the functionality of the, the application. But that were the amounts flowing through it. Uh, it's actually uh, such a big uh, company that uh, the rate of the euro used to fluctuate when they were using the application. And uh, it used to be a fixed day and they actually had to change it because they were having uh, speculation uh, on the day that they were usually dealing the foreign currencies and they had people uh, making money of the fact that they were always causing the ripples in the euros on the same day so they split it into two days in uh, the first and the, uh, the second half of the month uh, w with random days just to uh, not be able to game the fact that they were doing currency exchange Wow uh that's uh that's some big stuff i th there is um you know if you ever have the time i really should uh uh you know you should really come back to talk to us about the transitioning from you know where the legacy system is being replaced by a uh, greenfield project for such a uh, mission critical piece of software how you build it up replace it it's if we're going to stay in the construction analogy it's like removing the the legs out of a under a uh, bridge and putting in new ones almost because I'm assuming you're not supposed to go down for a week while you're uh, swapping in uh, the, the new project. But today I want to focus again on <coughs> why most software projects suck. So about this anecdotal story, um, do you have an idea why their legacy system sucked? What caused it? Was it too much money? Was it incompetence? By the way, guys, my number one reason why I think uh, software <laughs> projects suck is because of lack of communication or clear communication. It's like nobody seems to understand, like uh, by communication, I don't mean talking. I mean, really coming to a common understanding of what the hell you're doing. Um, so one of these things like uh, caused uh, the problem in the legacy uh, application. I think the original software developers weren't trained enough in the proper techniques. So there weren't any tests. It was a, an, an application from the early 90s. Um, so yeah, no, it, 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 it just lacked competence. And then it got a lot worse because the original developers over time got replaced by other developers. And they uh, every time had to rediscover the code base and were just patching to keep things afloat, um, but it, it just wasn't very professional. So uh, yeah, the, the complete lack of professionalism while working on the software when it was originally built, when it was maintained. Uh, Could we say then, <coughs> in this case, it was a lack of uh, structure, architecture, a lack of um, leadership as well, that people who worked on it failed to onboard people properly, show them around or explain their vision because maybe there wasn't any vision. It was being patched along as they went along. Is that, is that a good summary? Yeah, that's, that's a pretty good summary. Also, clean code wasn't very familiar. So if you get hit with a, 
uh, oh, oh, a function uh, that doesn't fit on your screen and it takes you four hours to actually go to every pos possible branch to, to understand it. Uh, and onboarding, uh, as I've always seen them, are very superficial. So that's the package where we keep that. Oh, that service does that. But actually, when you start to really read the code to understand it, it uh, all falls to pieces. Okay. Um, uh, Matt, uh, what do you think uh, about uh, what the, the legacy system problems uh, you're hearing there? Is this, is, are these things that uh, you experienced in, in your life as a software developer? Do you see these things like onboarding is superficial? Um, there's a quick turn churn, like people come and go. Uh, the, the legacy system is just being patched. It's a dinosaur that people try to keep alive with all sorts of uh, Frankenstein-ish inventions, or I think would you attribute... I think it all, all the above, uh, for sure. Uh, this is when I mentioned uh, software engineering is a uh, new, uh, it's a new uh, creature, and it's not mature enough. Uh, I still think that um, we might have some techniques now. I still think they're not um, good enough. Now, something that's also important to mention, um, now when you have, if you have a bridge and it, it falls, right? Which happened in the past? What, what do we do? Look at the engineer and go chop his head off, right? Or put him in jail. For us, when the, when, when the software fails, usually we don't have people that die, usually. So we don't go executing the developer. And this is where it makes y y we we could coin it the same with the same term, the the the, the, the bridge failed or the software failed, but uh, there are different levels. Um, so this makes it okay to have someone, well, let's not use incompetent, but this one uh, undertrained, and you get away with okay he delivered something that's not good enough. Um, it gets you some trouble. In some cases, you have to hire you know, triple D to fix it. Other times you can say, okay, I can get away with it. It's okay. It will so it so runs. It has some mistakes. We're not further up in the financial sector. So it's okay if, uh, if, if, you know, someone enters a character, you know, like a string too long and it does not, it breaks the system. That's okay. We're going to reboot it and we, 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 move al we move along. So certain things are acceptable because of their place in life. Um, and yeah, you cannot have the bridge that simply drops. Hmm. I think I think this this is something where Chris uh, is going to come with Uncle Bob and uh, accountability and uh, the the scribes guild I think he calls it. Or well, I, I wanted to keep the the example a, a bit more basic because it it feels like you're blaming the software engineer. I don't think it's the software engineer uh, from a typical consultancy company that is to blame for being untrained. I think um, uh, his boss is probably worried about the wrong things. I think uh, if they're worried about uh, daily rates and they're worrying about uh, uh, if he's billable all the time and things like that. Um, if you, you have, for example, somebody to come fix your roof and you contact the company and they send over some guys and uh, they, they mess up your roof and, and it leaks. Um, it's the boss 
that's accountable. It's not the person who actually did the work because uh, the boss is responsible to overseeing the work and things like that. Uh, the problem with big consultancy companies is that uh, the bosses of the, the consultants aren't usually technical. They're sales and they, they think of uh, money and uh, optimizing uh, revenue flows and they don't think about maximizing the skill level in the people that are actually uh, renting to the customers. So I would definitely not blame the software engineers in that case. Um, and then in a, inside a bigger project, if there is no common understanding, if all you get is fuzzy requirements and you're a junior software developer, it's hard to go and stand up and talk to the business directly. They usually not um, uh, endorse that. They, they, they try to prevent it or you, you sometimes you just don't know who you want to talk to. Uh, can you be blamed for writing bad and fuzzy code? I don't think so. I, I think the problem is much bigger than just the, the software engineer. If we take your bridge example, it's like uh, if somebody tells you that you need to build a bridge that is able to uh, hold a, a, a horse and carriage, uh, you will build a wooden bridge and then somebody drives a big truck over it. Is the engineer at fault? No, he got bad specifications. <laughs> Yeah, it's, um, well, how do I put it? Um, yeah, obviously, if you have incorrect, you know, requirements, um, or if you don't use the product properly, that's another story. Uh, we're not talking about that. But um, we, 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 we know, for example, again, I don't, <laughs> it seems like I, I'm taking this conversation to the, to the bridges, right? So we, we, we heard this story, I mean, I don't recall it 100%, but um, where the army was going, marching on, on a bridge and they all step in at the same pace and the bridge collapsed because of the vibration, right? So this is a scenario where, yeah, the, 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 we'll call them even developer for that matter, right? They, they thought, they didn't think of that scenario, right? So there's always something beyond what you can cover. You have to cover basically the, the, what makes sense and what has been historically known. Um, and can you, do, can you do more? I mean, if someone says, build me a bridge for just a horse and a carriage, and you say, you know what? I'm going to build one that will take, that will, can hold even like three tanks, one on top of the other. I'm not bowing on top of them, you know? It, they would call you crazy, right? Like, why, why are you doing this much effort? It would, ne it would never it would, it would never happen right and maybe they're right right it would never happen but then if someone is really stubborn right say okay i'm an artist i'm gonna bring three tanks one on top of the other and a boeing on top of them and you try to go on top of it then it would happen then right because we've seen people do crazy stuff and they label it art so and again please don't take it as i am blaming the engineer right <laughs> the developer uh, sometimes they are to blame, and many times they are to blame, but not always. So I, I do attribute some of this to the the infant industry. It is infant. We do not have enough. The day when we have hundreds of years of software development, then I'm with you. Because with time, we see that certain things do not fail anymore. Certain things simply okay, do I'll not... Yeah. I want I want to I want to say some things about about the the age of the industry. Um, so there is this uh, I never forgot who this person who was talking about craftsmanship, 
And I'm pretty sure it wasn't uh, Robert Martin. It was somebody else who was talking about craftsmanship. Sandro said, Mancuso. You know, could be. Like, maybe you'll recognize the quote because I'm going to paraphrase again. He said, you know, craftsmanship has nothing to do with uh, technique or technology. Well, as much like of the available availability of, of uh, a certain maturity. Like, if you look at uh, a, a Roman door that was built 2,000 years ago and you look at the beauty with which it was built and the fact that it was built in such a proper way that it withstood the test of time you don't really care like what was going through these people's minds what which tools they had um but they built that door uh so the per the people who are building nice doors now they're using completely different techniques than the person that built that door back then so the maturity of things like uh architecture uh, or, or bridge building. Now they they are older, but uh, the techniques with with which things are being built are modern. And I think the principles remain, but the things that revolve around, like the tools you use, the maybe even the techniques that that are being used, those might change. And that's why I think we shouldn't give software development uh, a pass because. I know there are complex systems, like complex systems being built, but uh, maybe uh, we can find other domains that, that we can uh, compare to, to, to construction software. I could be completely wrong about this, but... No, I, um, I, I agree, but I also think we're not that young of a business. I mean, uh, software development in a lot of the books are around since the 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 50s and 60s or, or, or even um, more back i think a lot of the books written on object-oriented programming talking about the encapsulation of state while uh, these days lots of developers just uh, generate all getters and setters and break encapsulation completely who still write procedural code outside of the object so they're not doing object-oriented programming uh, at all uh, it's not that the techniques aren't there, it's that they're not trained in using them properly. Okay, fair point. Uh, and I'll well, take that. But I want to talk about accountability as well, if I may briefly. So there is a discussion of, okay, somebody built a bridge, the bridge collapsed, who's accountable? Uh, is it the, the uh, person who designed the bridge? Is it the, people, uh, is the person who built the bridge? Or are the people who used the bridge? think it's the same thing uh, in in uh, software today as well right and when you talk about um, uh, staffing people who, who might be incompetent I mean sure but uh, I don't think that's malice or, or malpractice as much as there is so much demand in the market you just don't seem to, to be able to find people I also don't know how the uh, the, the education level is, is in schools when, when you're when you're delivering software developers. What type of developers are, are we delivering? Are they ready to to function in a, uh, in a company that produces you know mission critical software? Do they know uh, the techniques that that uh, you're supposed to know as software developers? So there's a lot uh, coming in there. Yeah, but, but even that is the, the too much money problem because you can uh, find lots of people wanting to, tr to throw money at the developers you have for hire. Uh, and then there is the not trained problem and nobody uh, even expects them to uh, be able to write proper software. 
They, they can just hack about without writing tests, which we see very common. So those two problems exist at a, a higher level as well. But the, uh, the, the, the money is not a problem there, right? The money, the money is high because of supply and demand. There's no good, there's not enough uh, good software engineers available. So the market kind of lacking a bit. So you have to take whoever you want. You have to pay whoever. Just okay. Just I'm gonna give you what you want and a bit more. Just come and sit and do my project. Uh, okay, but even if it's just supply and demand, um, I would still expect that if I hire somebody, that they would be competent at their job. And I think um, right now with the state of the industry. The demand is so high that they aren't even um, looking at competence anymore. They're they're just happy that a resource got filled. Which I would agree. Is all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I want to say something about the competence thing and come back to the bridge and also accountability. So, I I said you know a bridge collapses. Who's at fault? The person that designed it, the person that built it, or the person that used it in the wrong way. Now, um, we. We said we shouldn't automatically um, blame the builder or the engineer who actually went well, out there I'm and constructed sorry. it. No. Yes, but we should look at, you know, did this person follow the standard procedures that we as an industry know are correct? It's the same like anything could go wrong in an operation room where you could say oh, the surgeon, like it's like a freak accident. The surgeon couldn't have known that. But if you know the surgeon went into that room with the patient without washing his hand and the, the patient gets infected, then at that point, obviously, you know, that's what the surgeon did. And in the same way, you know, the bridge collapses. Somebody goes out and looks like, hey, they didn't use concrete here. They just used plaster. Yeah, then he's like, the engineer that literally put the plaster there is at what? fault. Are there telltale signs like that for uh, software engineering? We say, okay, this is something that's definitely on the engineer and not on, uh, you know, it's because the people use it that way or... It was designed well, that I'm way. sorry, I want to jump in, but okay, it's, 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 it's an answer to your question um, precisely. So when the, bridge, when the bridge collapses, the first thing we ask for is like, okay, gave me the blueprint, gave me the engineer, right? That's gonna be your starting point. It's possible that the construction was faulty too, but you go to the blueprints to see that, wait a second, what happened here? This is this, this, is this design good good to good enough first of all just to find out what's happening now for us if you're going to go to the software industry that's documentation that's documentation and design prior to development right prior to to doing the work now that's we see unfortunately that's lacking in a lot of places in a lot of you know a lot of um, uh, projects we see that documentation is lacking Meaning the design has to happen before even any development takes place. That should be at least laid out and, th and specifications are put there uh, and all clear. Um, so yeah, in this in this case, we have something that you can say, okay, it's equivalent because that would be your first place to go look into to see if we have a some flaw in, in, in the approach, initial approach to this. Um, uh, I, I, I already disagree there because I have never seen proper documentation and the problem, and, and, and that's where Uncle Bob has a very nice comparison. When, when we build our software, each time we compile it, 
it would be like uh, we can and, and run our tests as well, for example. Uh, you, you can practice building a bridge like uh, 100 times before you actually build it in the final location, but you can do that with software. And I think if you're going to document it in that, that much detail upfront, um, that you're better off writing the code immediately. What you can do is build in, um, and Cyril Martyr wrote a book on it, it's called Living Documentation. And that's where you uh, generate documentation based on the, the code that you have. Because um, any documentation that I've seen, it's always outdated uh, the next day. Um, so uh, it, it needs to evolve together with your code. It cannot be uh, completely written upfront. I can guarantee that it will heavily deviate from your code base. Uh, I, I don't see that working at all. I've, I've never seen it working. Yeah, I mean, you hear this often, no, but no, for me, it was a comparison yeah. to compare is what how can we compare the the bridge uh, you know the bridge uh, construction to software in software it would be then the designs uh, the design is not the documentation uh, per se i'm not saying here uh, the documentation of the code although i am a big advocate of documenting the code itself it's a way that tells me that this person who wrote this thought about it they're describing whatever they wrote in the code they're describing it in plain English, when you could see, for example, that, wait a second, I'm, I'm describing what this one does, I'm describing two things, and maybe it should be just mm. one if I'm respecting, mm. you know. Uh, mm. uh, I'll let, I'll let <coughs> Chris respond to that, but then I want to return to our main topic, which is why software uh, suck. I want to uh, uh, wrap that up there. Uh, yeah, uh, I usually the comments that I read are uh, very low quality. Um, uh, they're usually uh, a sign of laziness that people rather write a comment uh, instead of refactoring or restructuring the code to uh, not be so fuzzy as to need documentation. Um, even uh, extracting things uh, as a method, giving it a name, uh, talking in the language of the, the business problem, not just a technical solution. Um, a lot of developers are easily satisfied at the moment that their com code does what it should functionally do, but does not express the intent of what it's doing. Uh, and I think uh, comments are a very easy way out uh, of that uh, problem. Well, I agree with you as far as, yeah, people do the minimum, but not in the sense that um, what you see in real life that does not reflect what should be. Meaning, I'm not saying documentation uh, is you, you judge it by that developer that's really he was asked. He knows, for example, maybe his CI/CD would require for him to increase the coverage of of, um, of documentation. So he's just writing whatever just to be able to fill in the requirements. That's not that not genuine documentation. We're talking about now true documentation like really the same way as you say you write in the functionality uh, you, you think about the functionality when you write the code so this is the same way you are putting you are saying someone else now is trying to use this method and you don't have the details of what's in it and you shouldn't but they should understand from my my description first just the name should be clear enough hopefully 
but that's an sometimes we can push that too too much, right? We can sometimes okay. Your description of it should tell us okay what this means Be between the two between the, me the 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 method name, for example, uh, or the class name, and its documentation, it, its its um, uh, summary. You should have enough information. Uh, and by the way, this is different than the design, the architecture of the of 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 the of the components, which which and how they work together. Sometimes that's that's like in at the beginning, which is again that's different than the documentation I'm talking about. But yeah, that's yeah. Unfortunately, we see people that simply use some auto-generated uh, documentation. So yeah, it's based on a bad name for a method. So you end up with bad documentation, or you end up with something really copy-paste because yeah, they're trying to you know finish quick. Uh, and they don't see the value because that doc that documentation does not compile, right? So it doesn't influence what they wrote. Uh, but they don't think of the next person when specifically when you mentioned like the the older generation that wrote some code from before and then it was replaced by newer people and this new people there was n the onboarding. Well, if there was some good proper documentation and there's really good good ways of doing that, um, that would help. Can I can I say and I want to see whether uh, both of you can agree on this there is there is such a thing as good documentation good documentation actually exists you know I know it does because I've used it and there is such a thing as really really bad documentation and actually bad documentation is better off not being written because it basically adds to the confusion of you know instead of sending you in the right direction it sends you in the wrong direction so you need to even come back before you find your uh, route back so if the documentation you're going to write is not of uh, does not have a useful quality to it you're better off as a company not not doing it and not investing the time in it um can we agree on that or is there um yeah, I, I think the, the documentation of the architecture and, and the architecture that you're using usually falls under training. So it, it's a technique that you apply, like clean architecture, for example. So uh, I, I don't think that should be a part of your documentation of your system. It should be just a reference that you applied it. So... Um, the, the, the thing that you would need is some sort of overview of uh, y your business flows and that sort of thing that might be, um, uh, th that's in any case very useful, uh, but then it's up to your architecture and your uh, software engineers to apply good code practices to make sure that what you can just read functionally and uh, get while talking from the business that you can see that reflected in the code okay i have a feeling we're going to do need to do another episode which is uh about the <laughs> documentation <laughs> alone um guys um we've been at it for much longer than than we were supposed to um uh i'm gonna have to you know start wrapping up uh, okay well and i want chris yeah. Well, one one more thing on documentation. I, I do believe that visualizing things is extremely important while discussing things. Uh, but usually the, the scope of uh, the drawings that, that we draw is for the development only. So we expect that uh, uh, the code as the, the end product um, 
it, it, it's the, the drawing only serves that part of the life cycle. It isn't meant to uh, keep living on in the documentation. So you throw it away? Yeah. After we're done with yeah. it, or you keep it at an archive? Well, like, it or, or it's in the uh, the Jira ticket or, or whatever, so that that you know that the meeting and where you discuss the things that the drawing helps. Um, usually, what what helps the most is the fact that you see the drawing being drawn with the explanation that you can give to the team, get the feedback, that sort of thing. But to me, it's like uh, something that uh, a working tool, but not a documentation tool. So uh, yeah, well, that's uh, a yeah, that's a, that's actually a, a great mm. distinction to make. Probably, probably uh, something we can make on uh, not only on uh, drawings but also uh, on other documents as oh. well. And uh, j uh, just one more quote fr yeah, from ahead. Craig Larman. Uh, he says that code is actually just um, the byproduct of a learning experience. So you learn how a business works and what they functionally need. And the byproduct is code. Do you believe this? Yeah. Okay. I'll need to. Um, so it's one of those quotes that's probably you need to think about it before you're like, oh yeah, uh, makes sense. But I do believe that uh, it's all about understanding what the business is trying to do, and you learn that. And the better you know it, the better code you write. I'm 100% convinced of that. And to me, that boils down to communication. You know, <laughs> uh, understanding a common understanding <laughs> of what we're doing. Uh, but we, we just try to uh, tiptoe around communication. So uh, ju just oh, okay. uh, no, no. <laughs> it was a trick. What, what I would, what I would like you to do, Chris, is you know we started off with the question: Why do most software projects suck? Um, and you know, give your number one reason why. Could you now uh, recapitulate? Uh, you know, recap all of this since we had a one-hour discussion. Um, do you have a? Uh, a uh, broader way to formulate it. Why do most software projects suck? Well, I, I think the conclusion after this talk is that there are so many reasons why it can suck. So it's very hard to take away all those reasons and to get it working. Right. And maybe uh, an inverse of this question. Is there a reason why uh, software projects succeed? Like a single thing? Yeah, get all of those things on which you can disagree or uh, things that don't work uh, out of the way before you start a project by using something like a team as a service. Team as a service. Another very interesting concept. Maybe uh, we could have another episode on, uh, on, uh, on that as well. Well, uh, Chris, uh, thank you very much. Um, in the meanwhile, if we have listeners who want to reach out to you, where should they find you? Um, I'm on Twitter. So uh, uh, it's uh, K Hoffmans. I, I think you can mention it somewhere uh, as a link. Um, or you can go to our website, triplead.io. Uh, we have some interesting blog posts there. Uh, we have some quotes all over the place from people who are a lot smarter than us, but uh, they are things that we truly believe in. So uh, those would be the, the two most important places. Okay, we'll put those links up. Um, you also are the uh, founder of of, uh, of a Slack, I think. You want to mention that or? 
Uh, sure. Uh, so uh, I, I think it originally started because Slack was just brand new and uh, I, I wanted to see what it was all about. And then uh, um, lots of uh, software developers that we know and, and move around in projects, uh, they, they, they joined and then they brought their colleagues and um, well, it, it's called uh, Slack in Us. Uh, I believe uh, the name was uh, your suggestion. Um, and well, it, it's uh, uh, about a lot more things than just software development. I think actually it uh, deviated a lot uh, the last couple of years because its uh, original intent was to be very technical. Uh, but now it's also about uh, politics and uh, 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 the COVID-19 situation for the last year. It's about gadgets because uh, IT people like it. It's about cars. Um, yeah, it, it's a, a, a nice place to spend time and uh, I think one of his best qualities is uh, that you can be politically incorrect uh, at that place uh, and have fun discussions. Okay, and people are f uh, free to join, right? Uh, or is it, I don't, I don't know, is it invite only or is it... Uh I actually think it's invite only. I'm not sure if we can open it up. Oh, okay. Because it's uh, it's a uh, public. Uh, I mean, it's a free uh, accounting. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, we'll get to those things later. Uh, Med, where can people find you? Um, Medmed.com. Uh, simple. Okay. Uh, my name is Errol Baikal. You can find me on Baikal.be. And guess what? We have uh, since a few days ago. We have a uh, Twitter account. Uh, it's uh, Lazy People PC, which stands for Lazy People Podcast. Uh <laughs> <laughs> so uh, if you <laughs> if you have anything to say to us, come uh, tweet it out over there. Uh, thanks again for uh, uh, listening, and uh, Chris met. Thank you, Chris. Thanks for having me. Bye bye.